Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Today, I have a guest. Actually, it's my first guest from the UK, Sarah Williamson, and she is the founder of Drink Less, Live Better. And today, we're going to be talking a little bit about her story uh, with, um, you know, struggles with alcohol, and then, but more so focused on her recovery and what she's doing now for our community. So welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. Great. Um, I have a lot of questions just related to the differences in country. We'll get to them later. But to start, um, can you just give us a little background about like where you grew up, how you grew up, and what led to your struggles with alcohol? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a really small village in the countryside um, with my mum and dad and my brother, who's three years younger than me. Um, it was a really small village, no shop, but two pubs. <laughs> and that is really quite common um, in the UK. Or I would say it was at that time. Um, actually, a lot of our pubs, um, particularly in rural communities, have been closing down in significant numbers over the last few years. But certainly then it wasn't uncommon for there to be two pubs in a really small village. Um, I would say that my early childhood was really average. Um, we uh, went to the local school. Um, we had friends that lived nearby. I was very much into horses and riding and rode from a really young age and spent loads of my childhood outdoors. Um, in a way, I would say that that kind of childhood was probably um, a really ideal way of being kept out of mischief for as long as possible um because certainly you know i would spend all weekends at the farm um and wasn't particularly looking to fill my time with anything else um i started drinking around 16 um so the jobs that were available in a village of that size were mostly in the pub <laughs> and so i started working in the pub and started um drinking there the licensing laws are a lot stricter now than they were nearly 30 years ago um and whilst obviously nobody in the pub was supposed to be served under the age of 18 and absolutely they knew exactly how old i was because i was working there um being served in the pub was was no no big deal you know we we all my friendship group we drank in the pub and also we bought alcohol to drink out and be out in the park or hanging out wherever we were. Um, I moved away from home when I was 18 and went to university and really began my drinking in earnest at that point. But I would say to you, it wasn't terribly unusual. Um, you know, there's a big student um, drinking culture um, and very much I got stuck into that. I would probably have said at the time exactly the same as everybody else, but I, I don't really, looking back, I don't think it was exactly the same as everybody else. I definitely did a lot of my drinking as a fitting in activity um, and wanting to go along with the crowd. Um, I would say that I probably had many more introvert attributes than I'd have been prepared to have talk about talked about at the time. Um, I was most certainly doing that life and soul of the party thing, first on the dance floor, last off, 
last one ordering rounds of tequila at the bar um and looking back on that i do think that that probably was at all in masking my discomfort my insecurity my displeasure at being out in big crowds of people um but it was a tool that i used perhaps to get through those kinds of, of activities. Of course, never once thinking for a second, I could have just said no thanks and <laughs> stayed at home. Um, so my university experience um, was mixed. Um, and then I worked in London through my early 20s. And the mentality we had in the workplace there was very much one of work hard, play hard. And play hard was absolutely just a different set of words that meant drink hard. Um, and it was very much accepted that hangovers were part and parcel of people's working day. Um, I worked some slightly strange shift patterns from time to time, um, and so had the experiences of going out after work, missing the last tube home, forgetting not having enough time to get the night bus home and back into London again, so sleeping in the first aid room, um, you know, and just getting up and doing it all again the next morning. Um, and I would say in my 20s, I was able to maintain um, that lifestyle because I didn't have other responsibilities that were calling on me that meant that I could um, regroup, gather my strengths, sleep in on my days off and and get my act together um and then when i met my my husband in my my late 20s i suppose uh, mid 20s my drinking patterns changed again um less binge drinking and more you know just a, a couple of glasses of wine um after work in the evenings and then changed again when i had kids in my late 20s um and i had those periods where I was pregnant and where I was feeding the boys that I I didn't drink and I didn't I don't remember very much missing it I remember being okay that you know I it, it was just a period of time that I wasn't going to drink for and and it I don't remember it feeling like any um any big deal as far as missing out was concerned um, but certainly once the boys were toddlers, my drinking pattern then changed to a binge drinking one, which is the one that I eventually had to choose to or wanted to choose to step away from. Um, and in 2017, that was the moment that I knew that stuff was going to be different. Um, and I am now really glad to have made that change at that point. Okay. When you, there's a lot of questions I have, but, um, I so, didn't really give you a chance there, did no, you? No, 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 you're good. Well, you're good. Well <laughs> I No, I like it. Um, so I guess my first question is around your village. You said mm -hmm. it was a small village. What does that mean? Um, so it was probably a village of about, oh, maybe about 500 houses. Okay. So what would you, would you call that a that's, small town? I yeah, know. that's pretty yeah. small. I mean, you're talking yeah. even if everybody had four, 2000 people, it's a, that's yeah. tiny. I mean, that's not a big, that's not a big population. And you guys had two pubs. Yeah. So, um, and that was, you know, my understanding of the culture over in the UK is that it's very much based around workday ends. Families go to the pub together. It's more communal kind of thing. And, um, you know, the drinking aspect is part of it, but then there's also this community part, but drinking is very much ingrained in the culture. So yes. you're seeing that as a, at an early age, you, but are you seeing it at an early age as a, as a problem or are you seeing it as just the way that things are? Cause you know, over here, it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so I would say that within different households, that whole thing operates differently. I would say at that time, um, more than 30 years ago, it wasn't so much a family thing that it still would have been the men going to the pub on their way home from work okay. and meeting there and using it as a social activity. Um, th there were probably in that after work time slot, 
some couples and later on in the evening some couples the family thing would really have been more of a weekend thing okay um rather than weekday there was definitely a certain um acceptance of it just being how how it is um I would say that a lot of the stuff around conversations about what the scout group group are going to do next term and what the parish church are having a meeting about would have been in the pub and and those those sorts of conversations around stuff that was going on you know the parent teacher committees would meet that you know they were they were used as a hub as well as right. um, you know, a place to have a drink. But having said that, I don't ever remember, you know, people ordering coffees to drink or, you know, serving very much soda, you know, absolutely. The, the drinks would have been alcoholic drinks. A waitress there for a long time. And in those days, the yes, there was a, a food offering, but the majority of what the pub made their money out of was was drink it you know the the food would have been a small element of what their income was yeah yeah okay i for some reason in my head i had it as like hey all the families went there they had dinner and there was like this whole thing going on but it was very much so it's very much similar to the bars here in the u.s where you know uh people will be on their way home from work they stop they drink that's all they do maybe they have some appetizers then they go home and you know, it's kind of an extension of that workday, and it just becomes sort of this this uh, place where people go to unwind. Um, yeah. so what that's what they tell themselves, and yes. um, and then go home. And depending on what state they're in, that that home life becomes very different, right? Yeah. So, okay, so a very that is a small village that you grew up in, and you worked obviously in the in the pub, and then you know went on to university. Um, it sounds very similar to the university experience here in the U.S., based around partying, drinking, you know, keep the party going kind of atmosphere. You said something interesting that you were, looking back, you were probably an introvert, and you were using this tool to, like, sort of come out of your shell, which is a story that I hear a lot, um, you know, when you were not drinking, what were you doing during that time? Were you uncomfortable, or were you... Like, were you engaging with friends? What was what were the downtimes in university like, and how did you feel during that time? Mm. Um, I think in my first year of university, i i spent I did spend a lot of time feeling uncomfortable, um, either when I was drinking or not. I think I'd come from a tiny village into quite a big city. I was just on the outskirts of London. And I certainly remember enjoying either being in friends' kitchens or friends being round round at ours and enjoying, you know, drinking tea and studying and spending time together, enjoying the whole student lecture experience and and enjoying the other things that university had to offer. But I think I just wasn't quite comfortable. I, I think I very much missed, uh, I desperately missed being away from my horse, that, you know, that big attachment to the countryside and then finding myself in really quite a concrete jungle, that felt quite alien to me. Um, I don't think I got really very comfortable until my second and third year of university when I had then established some really lovely friendships. And actually in those friendships, we spent lots of time cooking together, hanging out at each other's houses. And whilst our drinking might have been big on nights out, we weren't drinking so much when we were at home cooking together and hanging out together. Mm. Um, so I think I, I used alcohol in different ways throughout different years of university. Yeah, I think it's a common th occurrence for young people coming out of, you know, their their parents' house and going to any kind of college university setting. I know for me, you know, I I live in a rural area now and I grew up here. Um, but when I went away to college for my first year, it was to a city. And it was sort of like you lost your footing for a moment. And mm -hmm. I didn't drink at first. 
I resisted it, but then as soon as I did, I was like, oh, okay, I, this is kind of making me feel a little bit more at home here. Or There was something about it that was sort of sucked me in, and I know other friends had that same experience as well, um, you know, and it was this sort of culture shock or, I don't know, it, you know, it's like you've lost your, your way a little bit, and you're so young, and it's just such a an easy thing to slip into at that point. Um, So it's not an uncommon experience, I don't think. And I'd really love to think, and I I don't know the truth of this, I'd love to think that universities now might be more aware of that, that set of feelings that's really likely to occur for young people. And what are the alternatives instead of offering, you know, our university system, the, the kind of social seen in the early days when you you start out is set around joining various different societies Mm -hmm. and clubs and things and so many of these were you know the cocktail club the real ale drinkers club you know these were the societies that were really easy to join and make friends in because they were accessible they were open to everyone you didn't need to be fabulous at a sport you didn't need to turn up with a special skill or talent all you needed to be able to do was say yes I'll come to the pub and I'd love to think now that there was a bit more inclusivity that you know the the common theme didn't have to be about what you were drinking but I I don't know if it's if it's particularly different I would like to think that but I don't know that we're quite there yet right I you know we live in a a a world right now where we get a lot of feedback about sobriety and recovery um but knowing sort of what's going on out there and hearing some other parents there's still quite the wild party atmosphere going on you know over here in the states we have fraternities and sororities that typically you know are really based around partying and drinking and you know Thursday through Sunday is just a wild, uh, you know, party time. Mm-hmm. I, I do know that <clears throat> some colleges are now offering like sober housing. So they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're understanding that there are people coming in who either have a real aversion to this or, uh, you know, are in recovery already, right? Because there's young people who are in recovery and, mm-hmm. you know, we have some sober high schools here in my state. So, you know, I think that maybe that it's getting there, but I think we're still kind of far off. It's, you know, it's still Animal House, you know, mm-hmm. old school, like those movies that sort of, uh, you know, kind of promote that kind of uh, atmosphere in college. I think mm-hmm. it's it's still going on, unfortunately. And I think it's so much of the stuff of what we watch in the movies, what we get fed on television, you know, so our our preteens our teens are watching these things saying oh okay I'm getting the message about what university looks like okay you might get shots of somebody being in a lecture theater or something but I'm gonna bet my last last pound that actually loads of the story is around what happens in the evenings at university and you know if if you're going to university with that being your expectation guess what you know that is absolutely what you will find and maybe it's part of why you why you go there in the first place absolutely it was for me definitely yeah and i mean a story about people studying in their dorm rooms isn't quite as exciting as the you know the story about the party so i get it but um you know it would be good to show people that side of it too so and then you know you talked a little bit about um you met your husband in your mm-hmm. mid-20s, and, and so you, you know, there was a shift that happened there, right? So you kind of came out of this party atmosphere and to more of this home-based, uh, you know, drinking, but it was nightly and routine, and that's, again, a very typical thing, I think, that happens. Um, your husband was drinking as well, so you guys were yeah. sort of, like, supporting each other through it? Was that the yeah. the yeah, idea? Definitely. I do remember a conversation that we had probably, I don't know, maybe just when we first moved in together. And he said to me one day, oh, have you got a glass of wine then? And so I'd just come in from work, had gone directly to the fridge and poured a glass of wine. And he said, did you know you haven't even taken your coat off yet? And I kind of had that moment where I was like, yes, I do know I haven't taken my coat off yet. And I remember kind of thinking, oh, is it because I'm still cold do I need to be wearing it and absolutely that was not the reason the reason was that I could not get to the fridge fast enough to I did not have time to 
pause and think about taking my coat off. And I think looking back, it's little sentences that people say that, you know, people wonder something out loud or they point something out quietly. You know, I wouldn't even have said that that was a particularly judgmental statement. It was an observation. Um, He didn't say it with any um, anything loaded in it, but it stuck in my mind for sure it did. And it, it didn't change anything in my mind in that moment, nor for a long time afterwards. But it is something I look back on and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I do remember that. You didn't take that message in, though, at that point and say, like, hey, there's a problem here. It was just something no. that was said and you kind of yeah. came in, passed through it and you went in and just drank that glass of wine. Yeah. No problem. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if there. So through that time, you were both okay with what was going on. There were no real issues, no challenges. It was just fine. You decided, hey, we're going to have children, have the children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, and you have two two children? Two boys? Two boys? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have the same two boys. It's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're the I always say it's the hardest job, right? It's this yeah. job where you don't know how well you've done for a really long right. time. Long time, yeah. yeah. Um so you, you mentioned that you were able to stop mm-hmm. and obviously during the time that you're stopping, you know, the nine month period plus the feeding, you're experiencing some sort of uh physical change mm-hmm. during that time as well as mental change. Yeah. Did did during that time, did you think at all like, hey, this feels a lot better? Or was it like, hey, this is what I have to do because I'm pregnant and because I'm now, you know, having to feed the kids. But once it's over, I'm going right back. Was there ever a moment in either of those stretches where you thought that I'm just going to stick with this? Um, the stretches were kind of joined together because I had my boys quite close together. Um, so it was kind of one longer stretch. I don't, I definitely had the thought at the beginning, right, this is just what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. I I don't think I ever stopped and really thought about how I was feeling with reference to not drinking through that period. I think I stopped and thought about how I was feeling at certain points because I was pregnant and then because I had a tiny baby and then I was pregnant and then I had two tiny babies. Um but when I went back to drinking, um, I didn't go back into it in the way that I had drunk before. Um, I, it would have been the odd glass of champagne, you know, if we were at a party or something. Um, then I probably went back to Friday nights and Saturday nights, opening a bottle of wine at some point later on. Um, what I remember feeling, though, was two things that were difficult to navigate and one of them was overwhelm one of them was two tiny babies and being so utterly exhausted at the end of the day I just didn't know quite what to do with myself and the other one was a really sinking feeling of detachment from who I had been before so I had left a job that was um, a responsible job where I managed lots of people, um, had a really big team, stepped straight from that into maternity leave when I was pregnant with my my first son. Um, And I expected to go back to that job at some point later on. Um, So in this country, we're allowed to ask for flexible working when we're coming back from maternity leave. I assumed that I would go back to my old job on a part-time basis. And that is what lots of my friends were doing as well, were having their babies and then going back to their old jobs, but working different hours. And um, in the time that I had left, my line manager, the director had changed. And when I went to go back, I recognised that it wasn't going to happen, that they were going to make things very difficult for me. To cut a long story short, there was um, an employment tribunal, which um, I came out on the right side of. But I felt devastated that I'd had to lose my job 
mm-hmm. and that I'd had to fight for something that was rightly mine, you know, that the law said, you know, essentially because of having a baby being female, you can't now go back to that thing that you did before. And I felt I had mixed emotions about it. I felt furious on the one hand, but deeply relieved on the other hand, because actually somebody had taken my choice away. And then what it meant was I got to be at home full time with my boys. And that really was lovely, but I couldn't really, I'd been putting on a pretense that I wanted to go back to my job full time. It was actually quite a relief when that was taken away from me. And I was then in the privileged position where I was able to spend some time at home with the boys. But in that mix was the feeling of conflict about, you know, this should be fabulous because I'm having the opportunity to be at home and full-time giving this my total attention why am I so absolutely knackered at the end of the day I don't know what to do with myself so I think that was then when it started to creep back in and then build up because I was overwhelmed and I was feeling in various ways either inadequate or, or or like I had been hard done by in some way or another yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there, right? Um, mm-hmm. One, you're a new parent twice, which yeah. is hard. Um, yeah. Two, you lost a job that you really identified with, right? So mm-hmm. when yeah. something like that happens, there's there's grief, right? So you're mm-hmm. grieving the loss of a job. You're sort of grieving the loss of this person you were before you had children. And on top of that, you have babies which are incredibly hard like mm-hmm. people told me how hard it was going to be and I don't I don't think you can articulate how hard it is in words right like <laughs> and it's so specific to the baby too right the child itself like even a good child presents challenges to a parent mm-hmm. and I don't think anybody's ready for it you know it's just you know things happen that you just are so um confused by we were just at a party the other day and somebody brought out i forget what it was it was actually a bottle of wine so (laughs) obviously i still go to parties and people still drink so they brought out a bottle of wine and it had my son's name on it my older son's name and then harlequin and so my wife looked at me and she goes look at this bottle of wine she goes it's winston's name and harlequin remember when he had harlequin disease I said, oh, yeah, I do. I forgot that. But what happened is one day he woke up and his face was like red on one side, perfectly white on the other, perfectly red on the other, you know, like a like a Harlequin. Uh, duck. Yeah. And I mean, things like that happen when you're a new parent and you just you go into a, a, a state of stress, like what is going on? Right. And that continues to happen over and over yeah. and your sleep. And still happens now. <laughs> yeah. And it still happens now. But at that point you're sleep deprived. Maybe, yeah. you know, you're not as well off financially. So like money is a real challenge at that point when your kids are young and you're just starting off. And it's like all these things compound. And I don't mm-hmm. think that we really understand it again until you're in it. And, um, you know, I'm always, I don't know that anybody does it perfectly, you know? And I think so, right now, a lot of people will look at uh, people's Instagram feeds or their Facebook and go like, oh man, those people have it together. And it's like, yeah. no, they don't. Like there's something, it's still hard. It's still a challenge. There's still the problems. They still wake up with a, a baby who, you know, has thrown up all over the crib or, you know, whatever. And it's like, those things are just hard. So you had just, all that going on. And then you decided that it was time to, to drink again. And yeah. you, mm-hmm. you, you had mentioned early on in the interview that you went into more of a binge drinking state. So yeah. what did that look like for you? Yeah. So, um, I probably wouldn't have drunk during the week. Um, it just wouldn't have featured as a thing to do. I, I think I probably did recognize that it wrecked drinking, wrecked my sleep. So I probably was concentrating on getting to bed earlier and trying to get some decent sleep in around the kids. Um, binge drinking looked like um, the pa- if I were to paint the picture now as an outsider looking in, it looked like fabulous fr- fun with my girlfriends. So we all had 
toddlers and we would take it in turns to go around to each other's houses on a Friday night at about four or five o'clock and then um, whoever's house it was would cook dinner for the kids the kids would all sit at the table and eat and then we would crack open a bottle of wine or prosecco or whatever and get stuck into that the dads would generally swing by about six seven o'clock on their way home from work and either pick the toddlers up and take them home and take them to bed or pick the toddlers and the mums up whoever needed picking up and take them away so that binge drinking was something that sort of filled the gap between about four o'clock and as long as we could make it till seven o'clock eight o'clock it tended to be condensed hours in which we drank a really enormous amount and in fact I'm going to correct myself there and say I drank a really enormous Mm -hmm. amount I think looking back I thought we were all drinking the same but really maybe we weren't I don't know I can't rewind time um one of the things that really bothers me now and it, it goes back to exactly what you were just saying about how these times can be hard um in the UK we do a really big deal of birthday cards um all sorts of greeting cards little wooden kitchen signs and stuff that make a big deal about wine o'clock um mummy needs wine Mm -hmm. mummy's magic juice hurrah for gin do you you have the same yeah we have that they call it like mommy wine culture or something like that it's it is really kind of geared towards women i think yeah the pinkification of alcohol and I look back on that now and we, you know, as a friendship group, we used to find all of that hilarious. And, and I suppose there's some stuff around it that does make me laugh now, you know, but more from the ridiculous point of view than the, than the, the feelings I now have around looking at new mums and thinking that it would be okay to say to them yeah sure I see that this day has been really hard for you let me crack open a bottle of wine for you why why is it not more common to say I see that that's been really hard for you what can I do can I bring you this lasagna come here do you need a massive cuddle let me can I get the hoover out for you can I take your kids overnight where where is all of this I'm, I'm not saying people don't offer to make the lasagna or whatever but that shorthand of here's a bottle of wine, I feel like it really numbed me down through through that period in my life. And actually, I'd have been better served not being numbed down, that I'd have been, of course, much better served if I was emotionally present for my kids in the way that I definitely was not on Friday nights and certainly was not on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that idea of, hey, hey, here's a drink is is constant through everything, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. oh, this was a hard meeting. This was a hard day. Let's mm-hmm. go get a drink. Or, you know, it's yeah. just like that seems to be the cop out excuse again, yeah. rather than like, hey, this was a hard day. Let's go for a hike. Or yeah. maybe we should hit the gym or to your point, you know, mm-hmm. do you need a hug? Mm-hmm. You know, like that would people would look at me really weird if I said that at work. But yeah. it's probably a lot better. Right. Yeah. And um yeah. You know, but being on this side of the equation, we can see that clearly. I think still being in the culture of, you know, a drink will solve it or multiple drinks will solve it is a, a very strange place to be. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just kind of how it works. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, you decided that it was time to stop. Um, mm-hmm. Was there any like groundbreaking moment or was it just in, like a a bunch of them coming together you woke up one day how did this happen um it was one moment but it did take me another two and a half years from that moment to actually do anything about it um it was a spectacularly horrific hangover um there was nothing monumental about the night out before it was a night out with london with two of my really good friends we had cocktails we went for dinner we um had more wine with dinner we had more drinks afterwards and then my two friends as they often did walked me back to the train station that i got my train home from and um one of them said to me as he he always did oh i'll call you at the station before yours because i generally always fell asleep on the train home he would always call me to make sure i was awake to get off at my Mm -hmm. station you know 
I was a grown up. I absolutely was not taking responsibility for myself, but he was really happy to help me along in that way. So had that night out, woke up the next morning and just had a dreadful hangover. I went to, um, we have cafes that we call Greasy Spoons, which are um, really kind of old school, probably the nearest thing might be your kind of diner yeah but so very fried food egg chips all, all of that that stuff um and i specifically went to a diner that was in the town next to where i live because i didn't want anybody you know to bump into anybody because i just felt so grim and i remember sitting and eating and thinking i just can't feel like this this is just horrific you know it was the shakes, the whole lot, took me several days to recover from. I kept the travel card from that day, from my journey to London, as a evil memento, mm. as a as a marker, as a as a reminder of that feeling that I had, that was physically awful, but emotionally probably the heaviest that I'd ever felt. Um, and it took me another two and a half years to hit the point at which I was ready to give alcohol a proper break. And in that two and a half years, I guess what I started to do was turn around all of the thoughts in my head about what I was doing to myself, the effect that alcohol was having on my relationships. I could see that if I continued the way I was going, I was going to have something that was going to happen either by my own hands or by, I was either going to, I don't know, lose the job I had at the time or blow up my relationship or say something regrettable to the kids or there there was going to be something that might have felt like a dreadful rock bottom or something that was going to be a war story on the other side of it Mm -hmm. and so I suppose what I was doing was trying to pull back from that position um rather than keep on going at it so I came to a point where I started to read the books that we call Quitlet um I started to and and I remember the very first book I had um I bought it in a charity shop your your kind of thrift stores Mm -hmm. secondhand store and I put it on the bookshelf with the spine pointing in so that you couldn't see the title of the book down down the side of it because I had a really big feeling of shame and guilt around it I didn't want to talk to anyone about it nobody in my family nobody none of my friends um and then through that I suppose 2018 into 19, what I started to do was really significantly cut down my drinking. Okay. And I got to the point where I could really happily go for a big night out with the girls and just have one or two glasses of wine where I didn't ever get myself into the kind of state that I had done before. Um, I, I would not be drinking enough to be feeling awful the next day. And I recognise at that point that many people would have been able to look at me and say, oh, right, you've nailed that then. You're dealing with that so much better than things used to be for you. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that could have been the end of my story and I carried on drinking like that. Nobody was going to point at me and say that that behaviour was problematic to anybody else, but it still was not good enough for me and I then made the decision that I was going to give alcohol a break for a year this was towards the end of 2019 mm-hmm. and once I had made that decision um and w- once I had done that year without alcohol I actually just knew at that point I never was going back to it and even though I would say that period of cutting my drinking down which I now would say was a version of harm reduction. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I was yeah. going to say that. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, what else could we call We could call it moderation. We could say it was sober curiosity. I wouldn't have had any of those labels at the time. I wouldn't have had that language. I, I just would have been able to say I was drinking less than I was before, and surely that's a better thing. Um, so I was really glad, you know, actually at the point at which I said I am going to give it a break for a year because I'm going to experiment. And if I feel 
good I'll stick with it and if I don't I'll just you know be able to go out and drink a couple of glasses of wine and I don't know I'll be winning at life perhaps yeah yeah and you decided to do this year uh without alcohol in 2019 which was a pretty challenging year to do this right because mm-hmm. I'm guessing that you all were locked down as well yeah right? so we actually didn't ask, start our lockdown until March 2020 oh, okay so I had had a, a stretch okay of um, yeah. sobriety before we got into lockdown it all these years kind of merge yeah. one into yeah they really do they really do so you know I was gonna say harm reduction for sure I mean and that's something that I talked about recently on an episode um, because uh, we were talking about it uh, at a group I work with part-time and you know it it was a concept foreign to me 10 years ago when I got sober um, I don't even think it was like a thing right it was kind of it was very binary it was all or nothing Um, you know there was no way that that was even in in the vernacular in our world but i think it is an important item that you know harm reduction can look like drinking less or you know i even said you know for somebody who goes out and drinks and then drives home just putting the uber app on their phone can be harm reduction right you've you've literally taken out a giant possibility of a problem by just putting Uber on your phone, if you're going to continue to drink, just do everybody a favor and do that. And, you know, that's not even something that was in in, in our world. So I think it's great that, you know, you pointed that out. Um, mm-hmm. So you did the year, you uh, liked it, you've stuck with it. And mm-hmm. then at some point you've decided that I like this so much, I'm going to share this with the world, which is yeah. a big step, right? So what propelled you to do that? Um, I think I probably started to find my voice with it about maybe six to nine months into being sober. I did have a wobble around the 11 month mark because I could see that I was going to be successful with what I had set out to do. I could see that there was a finish line and my wobble was then about well, what will I, I, I can see I'm going to do this thing I said I was going to do. What am I going to do on the other side of it? And so once I had established for myself that what I would do is kick the goal, kick the can down the alley, that I would then say, okay, I'm going to go for 500 days. And and in fact, that's what I've continued to do ever since. I, I happen not to say I'm never drinking again. Um, and the reason why I don't say that now is because... I said it a thousand times in the past with every dreadful hangover. I used to say I'm never drinking again. And of course, I never meant it in in those moments. Um, I think I probably started to around the six to nine month mark, find some confidence in telling other people how surprised I was, how much better I felt. And I needed to share my (laughs) astonishment that I had in the um, period that I'd been drinking, um, the close period, you know, to the point um, when I decided that I was going to have this break, I had been feeling less than fabulous. I had, you know, a low level anxiety. I definitely had brain fog in the mornings. I definitely was not feeling all of the best feelings. I was doing that stuff that looked like um, adding more in. So I was drinking the green smoothies, I was doing the yoga, I was going for a run, I was torturing myself with trying to meditate at that point, I was reading the inspirational books. Why was I still feeling a little bit rubbish? What, you know, surely that wasn't fair. And then decided to take the one thing out And that was a game changer. So I think once I had become settled into it, that six or nine months further in, where other people might have been saying stuff to me, you know, I am doing all of these things to live my best and greatest life, Um, you know, and and I, I guess amongst, you know, friends and then acquaintances and colleagues and people I was meeting online, we were having these conversations and that stuff turned out to be such a surprise to me because I had not known 
yeah, I mean, you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I had not known that there were online communities of people who were doing the same thing that I was doing. I had thought I was going to be lonely doing this year. You know, I thought I was going to be miserable. I thought I was going to be boring. I thought none of my friends were going to want to go out with me. And, and it was a total joy to establish online relationships and friendships with people who now are in real life, proper friends that I'm so grateful to have in my life. I just didn't realize that, you know, that that can happen in your mid forties. I thought I had all the friends that I was going to have. So yeah, that stuff has turned out to be a real gift and I'm glad to, you know, keep on in that, that vein as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that you share it. There was a lot there too. Um, you know, when I when I got sober, I did it through the rooms of AA for a little bit. So I had this sort of idea that there were these other people doing the same thing and had done it. And some of them had done it for, you know, a week and some of them had done it for 20 years. And, you know, so I was having that experience. But then I stopped and I found the online community, which I think has been the biggest part of my recovery, um, in, in all honesty. And I think it's a great place. Um, there's some great open, honest conversations that happen there. You get all different modalities of what to do. You know, some people are supplementing with fitness or some people are meditating or some people are yoga or some people just sit around and do nothing. And, you know, and I, or write, I think there's a lot of great writers in our space. Um, you know, there's podcasters, it's just an interesting world. Um, and I think it's super interesting that early in the podcast, you said, Hey, I'm an introvert. And here you are somebody who is like out there touting who you are. Mm -hmm. You have your, your business, you have a podcast, you're on podcast, you're so something changed, something shifted. And you're, yeah. I don't take you as an introvert at all, but that's just yeah. me right now. So yeah um interestingly uh so this year has been a big year of public speaking for me so i've been at lots of wellness festivals being on these stages where i do find myself having pinch me moments where i look around and i think if you'd have said to me 20 years ago there's something that you're going to stand on a stage and speak about in the future let me tell you how far down the list this subject <laughs> would have been as a guess what um and so i think that um idea of how i best like to operate around other people now is lovely conversations like this you know where it's one-on-one -on -one. I, I love my coaching one-to-one -one clients I, I do run some group programs for other people and a charity that i do some work for but my, my passion is in one-to-one -one conversations and i love being in small groups um and I also love now, which again, I never would have told you years ago, the time by myself, you know, uh, I used to very much use the let's be out and in the company of other people as a reason to also have a drink. And because that bit has been taken away, I've realised that I really am happy walking the dog by myself or, you know, with a friend or a couple of friends. Um, and so I think I shift up and down that introvert, extrovert scale, depending on, you know, who's around, how I'm feeling, what my energy is. Very similar for me as well. You know, I don't think I would have been doing, I never foresaw this or, you know, sharing my story, um, you know, back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it wasn't even in my head to be somebody mm -hmm. that's doing this. But as I've kind of grown in my sobriety, like coaching has become a really big part of who I am. Um, I started coaching youth sports. Now I do coach recoveries. But you know, if I could kind of reset the clock, I think teaching, or, or more so lecturing, right? Like I could, I think I could find myself really at home in like a, a lecture hall at a university just talking about something that I'm passionate about. Unfortunately, I don't think that's in the cards just yet um but yeah listen we share our stories and it might resonate with somebody i know personally um i've had three or four really good friends sort of at least try their foot in sobriety mm -hmm. and some of them have stuck with it and mm -hmm. that wasn't through me preaching to them that was through mm -hmm. me just talking to people or sharing what's going on in my life and they made changes and I think the more we share our story, 
the more people we reach. And that's kind of why I've done it. And it also makes me accountable to this much larger group, mm -hmm. right? Like all of a sudden now I have like, th you know, a thousand accountability partners yes. just, just because yeah. I shared, right? And, yeah. you know, I can hold it in or I can let it out. And it just feels, for me, it's felt better to let out what I've gone through and, and, and what I go through now and how good I feel. Like you, you just said, I feel good alone. Yeah. There's something great in feeling good alone, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that opportunity, exactly as you say, sharing our stories, I, you know, five years ago, I couldn't see somebody like me. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we need to all be like, look like, sound like somebody else to get a bit of a story. But the more people that tell their stories, the more people who are prepared to um tell if not all of the truth you know some of the truths of what really was going on inside your head and if that sparks a little bit of something in somebody else then that's just such good news it really is yeah and i think it's the recipe that worked well for the people that it worked for in aa for so many years mm -hmm. it is the recipe right except yeah. that those conversations were being had behind closed doors in a secret room in a church. And it was all like a little, it was like, it was almost to me as a kid, my mom was in AA. Um, she, she went into AA when she was 18. Oh no, when I was 18, sorry. She was probably around 35 or somewhere right mm -hmm. around there when she get, we found her sobriety. But, you know, she was very secretive about it. And it just, I, you know, it was just such a secret kind of thing. Like recovery was just as bad as, being an alcoholic yeah, or maybe it was like because they saw themselves as an alcoholic or somebody, you know, like this, there was a stigma around the whole thing. And so the, there were great conversations happening and great wisdom being shared, but it was not going outside of those rooms. Mm -hmm. And I think the beauty is now like those stories and, and the challenges and the triumphs are, are being kind of put out there on the table. And I think it's a great service that places like Instagram um, and podcasts are doing. And yeah. it's all free. Um, yeah. Obviously, you could get more by yeah. going and, you know, joining groups. I know that, um, you know, I saw on your website, you know, the She Recovers, there's, you know, all sorts of things, right? This Naked Mind, and there's yeah. all sorts of other things, your business as well. You know, the one-on-one -on -one coaching, I think, is so valuable. I'm a big advocate of you know, the coaching and the therapy and all of that. Mm -hmm. And if people can do it, I think they should. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's a value in our stories. And I just hope that people continue to share. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I really now looking back, think that I might have had my head in the sand a little bit. I think because the narrative running through my head at various points in the run up to my year, my year's break from alcohol was about being lonely, miserable and boring. You know, that I, I thought that alcohol was the thing that was bringing all the fun to the party was the thing that was bringing the, my ability to relax on a Friday night. I, I was giving alcohol an awful lot of power that actually it didn't need to have. And so part of these these places that you've just just mentioned was being able to see that sober people did not look lonely miserable and boring <laughs> they looked really quite normal living their lives and and actually i would also say that through the last couple of years i've shifted quite a bit from thinking that what i wanted out of life was um great excitement joy massive big experiences let me tell you the the place where i feel most comfortable is that mid-level range of feelings that's about contentment lovely okayness feeling fine just you know that that real level set of feelings don't get me wrong i'm i'm really delighted you know when things make me happy and i enjoy whatever experiences for the moments you know the fleeting moments of bliss are just lovely but i'm really really comfortable in that place where i experience more level middle of the road feelings because 
I am not experiencing those horrific lows and hangovers and morning after dreadfulness feelings. I would trade those any day of the week to be exactly where I am right now. Yeah. And, and I don't think that we can, I don't think we're meant to live on those extremes for long periods of time either. Right. We're not meant to live in that like super heightened, excited state for long periods of time or the super low. And I think what happens in, at least for me in my recovery is I'm able to sort of sustain during those okay times. Right. We, we, I've had a couple of conversations with my older son about, you know, just okay. And like, it's perfectly fine. Like life is mostly made up of just okay. Right. Like that is most of life. And I think when you're in active addiction, sometimes you're, you're sort of oscillating between super low and super high and you're skipping that middle ground all the time. And it's a tough way to live. It's a super tough way to live. Um, So for me, I've, I've, you know, I do still get a little uncomfortable during just sort of like those, there's nothing going on times. It happens, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I do enjoy it. Right. Sitting down and watching a television show for three hours with my wife on the couch is great. It's perfect. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade it in for the world. So mm-hmm. I get you. I 100% get you. Um, speaking of TV, a big mm-hmm. thing that I like to do is um, yeah. talk to people about what they take in media wise. I think it's it's a big interest of ours in this house. Um, mm-hmm. So is there anything that you are watching, listening to, reading right now that you would like to share with the mm-hmm. listeners? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you first of all what I absolutely am not wash- watching, listening to or reading um, and that is the news yeah. um, about two or three years ago maybe even longer than that I just one day there was something on the radio we were listening to a talk radio station at the time uh, that was I say it really dismissively I, I don't mean it like this but it was about another murder in London and one of the boys asked me a question about it and I turned the radio off in that moment answered his question and I thought I'm never having this in my kitchen again I'm not starting my day with you know the I'm I'm not saying that the news doesn't have a place but I recognized that I could be in control of how this stuff was received or not in my house um and so the radio left the kitchen um I went back to old school CDs in the car we weren't watching the TV on the news but by that point anyway and I don't have any of it on any feeds on my phone and I feel so much better for not consuming any of that type of media um my favorite thing to watch on TV at the moment in recent times has been Ted Lasso have you seen Ted Lasso so good so good Oh my God. So I've got three episodes left of the third series and I can't watch them because I don't want it to end. So don't tell me, don't give me any spoilers. <laughs> I won't. I won't. It's a, it's a brilliant show. And it's I actually so have good. a Ted Lasso figure next to me in my office here. Mm-hmm. So it's oh, so good. I just love it. So joyful. If you had have said to me, um, do you want to sit down and watch TV about football? I absolutely would have said no, but it's, just almost isn't about football at all it's love it so that is my favorite favorite thing on tv right now um my two favorite books in recent times um i think in 2019 maybe into 20 i read glennon doyle's untamed Mm -hmm. and really enjoyed that that really got me thinking in some new ways um and i do enjoy her podcast now as well we can do hard things um, I think my favourite read of last year was The Book of Boundaries um, by Melissa Urban. Um, and that was a really informative read, really useful, helped me to think about things in in ways that I hadn't previously thought about them. Um, I oscillate between reading nonfiction and also enjoying fiction. And, you know, that is another gift of sobriety, that time back to actually sit and spend time with the written word that is something that feels like a real joy joy to me um and music wise the um the song that i would say has been played maybe not the most times but has featured through the last couple of few years and my art my ears have always pricked up to it so it must be on a couple of 
different playlists that we have at home. Um, have you heard of Frightened Rabbit? No, um, I haven't. Frightened Rabbit, they're a Glaswegian band. Um, and the song is I Wish I Was Sober. Um, and it, it isn't on a playlist for for the content, you know, particularly for that song. It's it's on a playlist because my, hus- my husband really likes Frightened Rabbit. Um, his family are all from Glasgow, it's all, all Scottish family. There's a line in this song um, where the singer is talking about um, um, his relationship with alcohol and he's talking about his drinking. And the line is, the best of me left hours ago. And that line just, it really gets me every time that, you know, remembering or thinking about reflecting on being in a place where I would always know on an evening that nothing good was, nothing joyful, nothing great was happening from this point onwards. And the thing to think about next or turn my attention to next would be the hangover the next morning, the best of me left hours ago. Of course it did. And yet the behaviour was repeated, the the way that makes no sense at all but it's a beautifully written song it's really haunting i recommend you give I, it a listen i am going to listen to it i have it written down and it'll be in the show notes as well great it's got a good good video to it as well really good. worth watching good um for me this becomes increasingly hard to do because i do it week in and week out but mm-hmm. um i recently started watching uh in my office i zombie which is a kind of a goofy, uh, trashy sitcom type show. Um, it is, I, I had recently watched Lucifer, which was a show about the devil and he works with the police and, you know, he knows how to solve crimes cause he's the devil. It's literally the same show, but just with a zombie. So I, you know, somebody just plugged and played, but it's good. It's if it's, it's like mindless television watching. It's nothing major you could watch any one episode and you kind of get the story right um so that's my show of the week um you brought up ted lasso i think it might be the fourth time it was mentioned so people should if you have not seen it ted lasso is a must watch um my wife and i are watching homeland but i I brought that up before uh which is a show about the terrorist it was on showtime years ago i think and um is very good we're just kind of you know, pushing through it, you know, episode by episode. Um, I have notebooks this week, but I do have a song, one specific song. Um, last week I was driving through New York uh, up on my way up to Boston, and I was listening to a playlist, and this song called Orange Juice by Noah Khan, who came on my playlist, and I am not a very emotional person, so like, crying for me is a a big thing like maybe i'll cry well not a lot i mean i could count on on you know a couple hand on one hand how many times i've cried over the past 20 years um and i've heard the song a lot but for whatever reason on the drive up i i might have shed one single tear which is for other people like just a waterworks right so um it is a song about you know this person who found recovery and um, you know, they just came home and it just, the, the lyrics are touching the, the emotion in his voice is touching. Um, and we had seen him, uh, earlier in the summer as a family, we had gone to see him play a concert in New York state and, uh, he played that song. And again, I kind of maybe brought up that, I don't know. So anyway, go listen to orange juice and, and, and the, uh, song by frightened rabbit as well. And, uh, maybe you'll get something out of it two recovery-related songs this week. And the last thing, Sarah, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about what you do and how people can find you. And if you could leave people with one tip, that'd be great. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, my business is uh, uh, drinklesslivebetter.com. Um, actually, today is the eve of my book being published. Um, so my book will be available um, and that is titled, I didn't spend a very long time thinking about the title, you'll be pleased to know it's called Drink Less, Live Better. Um, and that feels like a lovely, lovely achievement that feels, um, again, you know, a bit like the speaking, would I ever have guessed that this would have been the subject that I might have written a book about? Definitely not. Um, I would say it's there's personal stories in there, but it's wisdom, it's insights, it's tools, 
um, it's different ways of thinking um, about things. Um, and it's written um, in four sections where actually a lot of the stuff could be applied, yes, to living a life without alcohol really joyfully, but also so many other different changes we make in our lives. Um, so I coach one-to-one -one with my clients mostly over a three-month program. Um, I really enjoy that um, developing relationship over that period of time and that's all about people changing their relationship with alcohol. Most people that I work with are looking for sobriety but some people actually are also looking for harm reduction moderation in their drinking um, and I have the podcast as well, Drink Less, Live Better, same title. That's awesome. Great. Well, Sarah, I really uh, like this conversation today. It's uh, it's probably one of the favorites that I've had on here. I was just talking to a friend of mine. He he started to blow through some of my episodes, and he was saying that he liked the one with my older son. And uh, I said, well, I like the one with my wife. But this is definitely going to be one of the tops. Uh, super easy to talk to. And, um, you know, I think your story's great, and what you're doing is great. And... Uh, I think I'm getting a delivery right now because my dogs are going crazy. <laughs> I'm just going for it. <laughs> I've really enjoyed today too. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Great, Sarah. And I will link everything we talked about in the show notes. So please check out Sarah's website, her book, which is coming out tomorrow. Was it tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. And then her podcast as well. And again, everybody, if you can review, like, and subscribe to the podcast, that'd be great. And we will see you next week. Wow.